Okay, here we are. Screen Heat Miami. This is a big one. Wow. This is epic. So big, we have to divvy it up. Yes, a two-parter. Man. Wow. So we are we are live. We're back again. We have a very special guest this week on our show. And uh, as mentioned, it will be a two-part extravaganza. Two flames. Yes, two flames and three shots at Capacito minimum. <laughs> uh, we have the great director, producer, local Miami legend now, even though he's still very young in his career. Jose Daniel Fresas is our special guest today. And this was a doozy. Oh, yes. Yeah, we get into a lot of it with JD, and he is just uh, a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, and, you know, and this is for our listeners to look forward to. And both this episode and the one following, he has now signed a deal with Leonardo DiCaprio's production company and Paramount. Yeah. On a project. Yeah, he has. Uh, it's a few projects. but Yeah, a few projects with him. And you'll hear all about it in this two-part series. Yes. But also, one of my favorite actors, Benicio De Toro. Oh, yeah. that was that's He's one of the, the icons there. Yeah, he's attached to this film that you all will hear about in this two-part series. Very exciting. Very much a, a, a Miami saga as it were, but trails Cuba and Miami, it's uh, into New Jersey. Uh, and it's, you know, if you if you like the Irishman, I think you will or the Godfather for that matter. Uh, you can see you can read the book now. Yeah. The corporation, the corporation. It's out there. It's uh, T.J. English, who also wrote another book about the the mob in Havana called Havana Nocturne. Yeah. So we'll put the link on the website. Yes, we'll, as always. You should definitely read the book while there's still time. But when this movie drops, there's not going to be time. It's going to be a big deal. <laughs> yeah, so we'll know about it. Yes, but yes, JD, a homegrown product here of our community, uh, son to Cuban immigrants that grew up here in the exile community and has really branched out and done some amazing work both locally and elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, and you'll hear all about it. But what we want you all to hear all about right now is our sponsors. That's right. I am JL Martinez with Kevin Sharpley. And this podcast is brought to you, as always, by the Miami Media and Film Market. Chemical. Kajit Multimedia. And Cinevision. I let you say it this time. <laughs> See? See what I did there? I would never destroy it. <laughs> I've gotten much better, though. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So these, I think we're going to make this intro outro as quick as possible because we have a big chunk for you all to hear it's, it's it's definitely a robust interview but yeah i think we should just go through a couple of quickies you know we just had the thanksgiving weekend yeah uh, big box office numbers once again by frozen 2 frozen 2 is breaking the bank for such a cold title it's heating up the box office disney is raking in the money the mothership the death star what is, is this this is their fourth billion dollar mm. film yeah they still have Star Wars coming out. That's what I'm saying. Like, they haven't even shot their biggest cannon. <laughs> no. But maybe Frozen is going to, you know, well, Frozen is headed. It's going to definitely tip over a billion. Let's yeah. see how far over a billion it tips. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely on a run. But, you know, th- it was also an interesting weekend for smaller films. Uh, yeah. Knives Out did fairly well at the Barks office. Uh, Knives Out still, I think it's at 98% yeah. Rotten Tomatoes. Queen and Slim. 
Yeah. Doing fairly well. So, yeah, I think... Queen the, and Slim, they had an Oscar buzz. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ford versus Ferrari is still racing along. I saw Ford versus Ferrari. Brilliant movie. You liked it? Brilliant movie. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, this might be... It just might be Matt Damon's best role. Really? Yes. Huh. Yeah. I gotta check it out. Maybe some Oscar buzz for him. Mm. I think that's... Yeah, I think that's definitely in the works. Uh, what else happened this weekend? So, uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Also did well. Talk about Oscar buzz. Yeah, Tom Hanks. Good old Tom, the old Oscar staple. <laughs> Lock it. Doing what he does. Lock it. Yeah. So exciting things that it's not only the big franchise movies. Yeah. That are making headway. It's it really is also you know some of these more original stories that are starting to break through even during the the busy holiday season. Yeah, that pendulum, it swings, and we talked about this in the. JD. Well, it's Jose Daniel Fresas. Yes. But we we call him JD. Yeah. In the interview that we just did, we talk about the pendulum and how it swings back and forth. Right now, you know, that pendulum is very much in these huge cinematic universes. But Scorsese and the Irishman has made a big splash. Yeah, no, it has. It, it dropped the Wednesday before Thanksgiving officially on Netflix, and it has been getting a lot of buzz. There's been a lot of buzz leading up to it. We've been talking about it for several episodes now. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was finally away, available for the wide Netflix audience, and it has been doing well. Not just doing well for Netflix, their box office as well, but, I mean, doing well Definitely with the reviews. Critically, yeah. Critically. I mean, everyone, every critic that I've read, you know, they have loved the movie on so many different levels. Oh, yes. On so many different levels. And it's already won an award. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, it's it has that kind of cachet to it for obvious reasons. You have some legendary filmmakers, producers, actors uh, that have been behind this project and shepherding it for so many years and really uh, a testament to that type of cinema, that type of genre, the something that is is really just a story that that you don't see that often anymore. Yeah, I mean, here's a review. The best movie of the year so far and one of the best films of the decade. That's the Chicago Sun-Times. Wow. That's that's huge. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I saw it. And I know you saw it as well, Kevin. I did. What are your thoughts? Three and a half hours. I do feel it's a tour de force. Mm -hmm. Martin Scorsese is masterful. He uses every tool in his toolbox on this film. And I think the actors do as well, from Pacino to De Niro to Pesci. De Niro, of course, playing the younger version of himself, the midlife version of himself, the older version of himself. I mean, that's a feat in and of itself. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of people didn't expect this kind of movie because it's very different and markedly different from Scorsese's other films of this canon, other gangster films of this canon. The film isn't necessarily, although it is centered around Hoffa and Sheeran and that relationship, and I'm not going to give it away for listeners who have not seen it, I really feel that this film is more about family. Mm. And really, the choice that was made to choose the mob family, Sharon, the mob family over his regular family. 
Right. And so that makes it an entirely different film because then it isn't necessarily just centered around the mob. Hmm. These are choices that people make every day. So it could be the mob. It could be, you know, alcoholism. It could be drugs. How people choose one thing over, over the other, one vice over the other. So that, I think, is a really big dynamic change in terms of the cycle of the movie. Yeah. And the life cycle, you know, from a young man in the war to an old man facing his mortality down. Mm. This was an epic film, no, most it, certainly. Yeah, it, it, that, it had that kind of breadth and that gravitas to it. And like you said, more than just a, a, a gangster picture, it really talks about family. And, and particularly in the later stages of life, I mean, some of those last few scenes are heartbreaking when you see um, uh, those performances. And they're just beautifully done. Yeah, when I was at the end of the film, after the film, I'm like, I have to go watch a comedy. Yeah, no, you, you gotta line <laughs> things up. But one thing I will say, I will say, you know, as, as great as the film was, I, I did not fully buy into the de-aging, I'm gonna be honest with you. Not because of the visual part, I mean, I think Industrial Light and Magic did a phenomenal job, but I could tell the age of the actors. Even oh, yeah, because, you know, the scenes. body language, the... Correct. It is harder. Right. You know, to but th- that is something to think about as this process moves forward. How are the actors going to be able to embody those age differences? And it could possibly be easier for a younger actor to embody an older performance, but an older actor to embody the younger performance. Maybe right. a little bit more challenging. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, all, all the scenes where you know they they say they play their age or a little, you know, you could tell. But yeah, it's just it's something about it that just didn't it didn't ring true to me. You know, just because the movements, the body language, there's certain things that it's just very difficult to you know to recreate. You know, with a body that's age. I mean, you're talking about two actors. You know, Pesci and De Niro. They're 76, I think now. Uh, Pacino 79 pushing 80. Yeah. That's hard, man. Yeah, but you know, on Pacino's part, you know, it really didn't take him that far back, not as far as De Niro went yeah. back. De Niro I think went back to his 30s. Yeah. In those early scenes. Yeah, maybe even younger. Yeah. When he was in the war. So Right. So it's just one of those things that, you know, you can't have a perfect thing because you have an actor of a certain age. You know, obviously, I could not imagine that movie being played by anyone else. No. And the other option had been, you know, maybe casting younger actors to play the younger versions. But I I think even that would have shortchanged the film. It wouldn't be the same film. Right. It wouldn't be the same film. And, you know, some people talk about the three and a half hours, but Scorsese deserves it. Mm -hmm. You know, he really deserved that time and he deserved this film and I really feel you know after the amount of time that it took to bring this film to the screen that certainly a huge service was done it was done for Scorsese and for the audience Yeah, and it's a movie that you know I was talking about it earlier one of my favorite movies is Heat so that's you know the very first De Niro and Pacino, you know, movie together. Yeah, the t- the first time they acted together, they were both in Godfather 2, although in different time periods. Acted together, exactly. Right. And but, so the yeah. first scene, the scene that they were in the cafe together. Yes. You know, when I first saw the movie, I was kind of underwhelmed. 
But when I watched it the second time, I really felt that that was one of the most powerful scenes of the entire movie. And it was brilliant because for, they were speaking on two levels. First of all, uh, the, the, the cafe, the restaurant is called Kate Manolini's. It's not there anymore. It was our old commissary at ICM. It was literally across the street in Beverly Hills. And when you used to walk into the restaurant, you would turn around. They had a huge mural of that scene of the two actors. Oh, wow. Together. And yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the agents used to have breakfast and lunch there. Um, and they would never take reservations, but this is, a, it doesn't matter anymore, but uh, that we used to have a secret ICM code to make reservations only for our agents to be able to eat there at a certain time. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. That's some great insider That's information. Insane. Too bad it's not there anymore. You would give us the code, right? Yes, I the would. The cheat code. Yeah, there's no more cheat code. <laughs> but, uh, and ICM also moved headquarters into Century City. But the, that said, what I loved about the scene was that it, they were almost speaking to each other on two levels, as the characters, right. but also as the actors. And it was, yeah. like, so you're saying, this is the life we chose. Yes. Yes. And that's what really gave me that appreciation when I watched it the second time. Mm-hmm. Because really, it's like four movies in one. Yeah. You know, and to, and to bring it together, you know, in, in, in that amount of time was and is brilliant you know it sure. stands as you know one of the most powerful movies you know in, in cinema history oh it's a beautiful movie and, yeah and so you know that's the way that I felt about Pacino and De Niro in this movie mm. they're symbiotic and cohesive dance in this movie is at its utter most brilliant point mm. And I'm excited to watch the movie again just to get that. Yeah. Extrapolate, you know, that second layer and that third layer right. from their performances. But I think from everyone's performance in the movie, it's it's definitely a movie that, um, of course, I'll have to carve out quite a bit of time. Right. But I'm looking forward to seeing it again a second time and a third time. Oh, yeah. No, it's one of those. I think, yeah, n- now that I think that that sort of uh, Irishman has reopened the world of this type of cinema and to really appreciate those performances and another thing that you know like I said nothing against CGI but I think we've gotten so caught up in these sort of visual spectacles that we've oftentimes forget the importance of character and performance and emoting on camera and I think that it takes the great actors yeah. going toe to toe like you know two boxers in a ring yeah just to really appreciate the artistry and the craft behind that yeah and i'm interested just to see i mean this is going to be a tough oscar season it's going to be a you know a tough award season there are a oh, yeah. lot of um you know just dynamic performances yeah so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen for this award season oh my gosh it's it's the year of the auteur it's the year of the actor it's the year of so many interesting things oscar wise um as the industry continues to churn and evolve yeah that being said of course i would love to see you know more diversity Mm. um in a lot of different ways you know um there weren't a lot of women represented you know in this particular cycle Right. You know, um, you know, there's the challenge with people of color, you know, it's also looming. So, but yeah, yeah, and still I'm excited. So, but well, speaking of diversity, the last little thing before we jump into the interview with JD is uh, Sundance announced their lineup. And Miami did okay. Miami did okay. You know, our our friends from Borscht, we recently had uh, Brett Potter. And uh, their film, Omniboat, did get accepted. Uh, so, and, you know, congrats to all the directors on it from The Daniels, Hannah Fidel, 
Alexa Lim Haas, Lucas Leva, Olivia Lloyd, Jillian Mayer, the Metza brothers, uh, who hopefully will be coming soon to our podcast as well. Terrence Nance, obviously Brett Potter, Dylan Redford was a director on it, Xander Robin, Julian Yuri Rodriguez, Celia Rolson Hall. Uh, and that's just an interesting list of directors for this this film that's going to be. Made. And Robert Redford Robert is actually in the film. In the cast, yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to get into Sundance, I guess. <laughs> One good well, way. it is, but you know, Boris has had it. I think the longest run in terms of you know short films yeah. being accepted into Sundance. They're so, so. talented. I don't think yeah. they even needed Robert Redford in it, but those those guys and you know their festival just can't hurt. Can't hurt. <laughs> Nowadays, you, you never take a chance. <laughs> No. <laughs> but uh, another documentary is going to have its world premiere there. It's a, a good friend of ours, uh, Kareem Tapsh, who directed a a documentary based on the life of Walter, Walter Mercado. Mercado. Mucho, mucho amor. And, and this is great. You know, uh, Walter Mercado just passed. He did, pa- unfortunately. So yeah. what a tribute. Yeah. What a tr- yeah, it's, you know, unfortunate timing. I, w- I think he would have loved to have seen, had that experience of maybe going to Sundance and being part of that. But yeah, unfortunately, he did pass away. So, you know, um, uh, condolences. He was really, you know, part of th- this Miami icon family. You know, for those that are not from the community, uh, you know, he did horoscopes. That's what he did. Yeah, the, but he did more news. than horoscopes. But they were was, live scopes. He was just a personality. He was a persona. He was, you know, in every every Cuban and immigrant household in Miami. Yeah. Uh, and he he felt like he was you never met him but he was part of the family almost yeah Cuban he's Puerto Rican yeah so of course but, the Puerto yeah. Rican households but you every know Latin every Hispanic household, yeah. yeah every yeah. Latinx you know household but also you know I would watch Walter Mercado you know and I'm not Latin at all it's <laughs> just interesting to look at even if you don't speak the language the way he carried himself and the way he delivered uh, you know his his well I understand enough but right. his 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 whole presence and his whole being you know yeah. so this is a I, I think a, a, a really incredible tribute. Yeah, it's a sh- shout out to Kareem and the entire team behind that film. So yeah, a couple of projects with Miami ties that we're so excited we'll be we'll be doing the dance in January. There you go. So speaking of dancing, let's get to it. Yes, let's jump in. We have a dance for you. Extraordinary interview, and I'm so happy. JD's part of the family. He's amazing. He's such a talented producer. So, without further ado. JD Fresas. Okay. All right. Or do you prefer now JD or Jose Daniel? Um, Jose Daniel, um, you know, on screen, friends can still call me JD. <laughs> All right. Okay. How about for podcast purposes? When you print it in writing, Jose Daniel, but you call me JD. Perfect. Uh, that, All right. That, so that, that to works. be official, Jose Daniel Fresas will be using JD. Let me help you out here. Fresas. Fresas. There you go. You know, I've, I've always wanted to Whoa. ask you that too. Yeah. Fresas. I don't know why I always say fresh. Like, I want to pronounce it like a... It's the X. Yeah. But it's fresas. Fresas. Perfecto. And that, I love it. And that's... From Spain. From Spain. Yeah. Right. Okay. My, my ancestors are, are from Spain. Wow. Oh, my father and grandparents are from Cuba. Great right. grandparents. This is a good starting point. Yeah, no, because we're starting way back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my ancestors, also some from Spain, he was a runaway archbishop in the Catholic Church that hooked up with a girl and left the church, moved to a farm in Cuba, and had like 20 kids. Wow. 
Yeah. 20, 20 kids? You had to make up for lost time. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of kids. Man, I want to I want to yeah. go to your family reunion. It's a big one. Yeah, I have cousins <laughs> I swear I haven't even met. Like first cousins, second, third cousins, like just running all over this country probably. <laughs> Some of them are still in Cuba. I don't know, you know. All right. So, yeah, it's uh the Martinez clan is quite large. <laughs> uh. Yeah, maybe you guys are related somewhere. Somewhere back in hey, there, we're yeah. Cuban. We're all related. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we're all cousins. <laughs> That's right. So we, we we're we're back in Cuba. Your parents migrated from Cuba to here. Yes, yes, they came. Uh, you know, in the early '60s, and uh, you know, Castro took over, so everyone saw the writing on the wall. My dad came alone with my uncle who actually just passed away, rest in peace, Bebe Fresas, mm. um, and my uh, my aunt, Esther. So the three of them came and their parents stayed. It wasn't necessarily the Pedro Pan airlift, the Peter Pan airlift, but um, same type of deal where the parents stayed behind. Right. Yeah, so the, the Peter Pan airlift and the Mario boat lift were the biggest migration. Yeah. Two different generations. Two different. Yeah. 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 The Peter Pan airlift was in 60. Uh, Mariel was in, I think, 81. 81, yeah. Yeah. 81. Yeah. yeah. So the Peter Pan airlift was something else. It was 14,000 kids, mm-hmm. uh, on, you know, get put on planes without their parents, sent to, to Miami. That was really the first influx of Cubans in Miami. Miami was not a Cuban city by any means. And they were put into, you know, camps in Homestead and in Kendall. No, was it? Yeah, it was Homestead. And there was one in Kendall. Right. It was predominantly two camps. And one of them was for, where they were for, for girls. Every all, all these kids were under 18. That was part of the deal. Fidel uh-huh. Castro didn't really view anyone actually under 16 as a security risk. Right. So for him, it was like, oh, okay, kids under 16 can go. The adults... You know, they can revolt against me, so I'll keep them here and repress them. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, the, the kids, the, the boys, I believe, under 12 went to the camp with the girls. The boys over, uh, over 12 went to the other camp, which was just the boys. So they put, like, young kids and, and women together. Um, right. And, yeah, they, uh, they were in the camps, and then they got adoptive parents but they were like temporary you know it was only meant to be until their parents got to Miami or Fidel they took Fidel Castro out everyone you know Cubans for over 10 years were assuming they were going home right. that was like kind of yeah. the vibe like yeah. just gotta figure out this Fidel Castro situation and we'll be on our way back yeah they, I mean yeah, it was uh, a temp- how many it was a attempts have right. been you know trying to yeah. death is the only thing that took Fidel out you know it's amazing yeah. Uh, so yeah. So that's kind of everyone. All these kids got put with foster parents. You know. Speaking of it, um, there's a very famous book called uh, not famous, but enough. It, it won a national book award in 2003. It's called Waiting for Snow in Havana. Uh, it's written by Carlos uh, Ade, Cuban Peter Pan guy, and it's a story of him and his brother. The, uh, in the year leading up to when Castro took over and they left to Miami on the Peter Pan airlift. Really beautiful book. What, I mean, if you go to Amazon and you look up Cuban history, it's always number one, two, or three. As a matter of fact, the only one of the only times it wasn't number one was when the corporation came came out, which was uh, 
We, right. we unseated uh, Waiting for Snow in America. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Yeah, one. and this is really, yeah, yeah, actually, <laughs> well, yeah, because it'll bring it around full circle. And this is this is what we'd love to do at Screen Heat Miami, which is, you know, what shapes a filmmakers, a producers, a writers, a directors, their way through the industry, their yeah. way of telling stories, you know? And this is important, and especially since you brought up this book. Well, before we get into that book, I own the rights to Waiting for Snow in Havana, too. Oh, uh, and, wow. And the follow-up, Wait, Learning to Die in Miami, wow. which is the story. It was his follow-up to that. So Waiting for Snow in Havana takes yeah. place in the year leading up to him getting on the plane to take off. So it's a whole story of his life in Cuba with his brother and the communism that starts to seep into his daily life and just starts really rattling him, his brother, his parents, to the point that the parents put him onto the Peter Pan airlift. And then the second book, Learning to Die in Miami. So basically, the first book ends with them in the air, leaving Cuba. Part two starts with them, the boat, the plane landing in Miami. Okay, I, I, this is exciting because I really, really, really want to hear what you're going to be doing with that. Yeah, right. Two. Um, but we're at the point where your parents then get to Miami. What happens? My well, they they weren't together. My mom was two or three. My dad was fourteen. They're a little bit right. older. Right. So my right. dad moves to Tampa with my aunt and my uncle and starts washing dishes at the village in Pancake House. Hmm. Yeah, that that was where they where they where he kind of started his life. I hear that Andy Garcia scene in The Lost City where he's in New yeah. York just washing dishes. Yeah. yeah. And then my, my grandfather and my grandmother come over. They move to Tampa too. And then my dad and my grandfather start washing dishes in the village in Pancake House. Wow. Um, because my uncle and my aunt were just too young to work at the time. Mm. And eventually, he, you know, they make their way down to Miami. And then... You know, restart their life. Restart their lives. Certainly, my grandfather, who was actually a very big supporter of Camacol and had received many awards from Camacol mm. back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, just just like every other Cuban, you had you had to learn the language, you had to ingrain yourself in the community and figure it out. So. That's but it feels like our community had did it in such an accelerated manner versus you know other Latino communities around the country. I mean, they're all beautiful and they all have their own culture, but I think there was a particular drive to the Cuban community, particularly here in South Florida. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't even know how to put it into words, but it, it's, it's clear that Cubans have this thing about them that they, they, they just go. They just attack. They just get it done. Right. Um, they're very smart people, very easy to work with, very, you know, when you see the, the goal and the ta- that you go, go and get it. Um, it's pretty impressive. It's very impressive when you think about what was, what was the identity of Miami before Cubans came and just really made this a Cuban city. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. to this day, it's just shocking. I've lived in New York. I've lived in L.A. I've lived in Miami. Miami is a, is a Spanish first town. Yeah, everyone will. You can speak Spanish first, and then go to to, to English. Yeah, I mean, there's businesses here where the owners of the business. I mean, big businesses right. that you know, Spanish yeah. is like their main language. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. So yeah, uh, Miami. 
talk about it. I mean, I, I, I was born in 83, so right. the change into the city was happening for over 20 years before I was born. All I've ever known is what I've seen, which is a Spanish first town. Cubans are the politicians. Cubans are the successful businessmen here. The Cubans are, are, are they've reached every level of this town from business to political. Right. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny when you move to other cities and a Mexican gets elected as a mayor and it's amazing to see like so everyone's so excited about this like it's a groundbreaking kind of thing and I'm like wow that's just been going on for so long in my city no, but when I- you're young it's there and you grow up in something you don't really know till you're older I guess so you just grow up in a city that's you know Hispanic and the Cuban flag and lechon and grandparents and these things these are, these are just things that you know of I don't think it was until I started getting into high school that I started realizing, like, oh, wait, I'm Cuban. Okay, I'm from Cuba. I'm not, you know, Miami's like a, okay, my parents are from there. Miami's just like a city that we're in. Um, and in high school, I, I got really deep into graffiti. It was just a thing. Actually, in fifth, I started doing graffiti in fifth grade. Oh, wow. I grew up in Coral Gables, which is, you know, pretty nice neighborhood. And I caught on to graffiti, and I spent... A large amount of time vandalizing Coral Gables. Oh boy! On, on my bike. <laughs> really? I, I don't know if you guys remember Rex Art. It used to be. Yeah, like, Rex Art. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it used to be on Lejeune, where like that payway is right now. Yeah. Lejeune, off of Miracle Mile. I used to ride my bike there and like, you know, buy paint markers and spray paint and. Wow. That was just like my hobby, and that that really took me into high school. I, I was just it was just a thing. I loved graffiti. I wasn't that good at sports. I wasn't that good at academics. Right? I didn't think. I didn't know I was good at academics. I was busy bombing and doing graffiti and not doing my schoolwork. Hey, you just got to be good at something. That's kind of where <laughs> I was at. I was like, hey, I, I, I'm good at this. I like it. Yeah. And, and at the time, girls dug it. So I'm like, oh, this is cool. Go. Yeah, but you know what's great about graffiti is it's storytelling. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it also it also prepped me for the business world in a way that that like, you know, in graffiti you have a crew and you have a name. And you recruit people. And sometimes someone's really good at this style of graffiti. And sometimes guys are good at that style of piecing, wild style. You know, a crew, sometimes you need tough guys that can fight too because you catch beef. So it's almost like putting together a sports franchise. Like, all right, I need a center. I need a quarterback. I need two wide receivers. All right, this is going to be our name. This is going to be our uniform. So graffiti really taught me how to organize and how to put things together in many ways and, and I took that on into the film business because mm. that, that's the transition I made I went to I got into so much trouble in high school I mean wow it just like getting kicked out of schools getting arrested fighting like the graffiti thing it was just it got me into things I normally would have never gotten into yeah and that's it I went to private schools the whole time I never uh-huh. went to a public school wow so oh. it's not about public school versus private school it's not really that um, I know kids that went to Gables that were honors all the way and went to Harvard and are bawling right now. Right. So anyone that tells you, you know, oh, it's because they went to a private school. No way. Well, I think one of, one of your future movies touches on that a little bit. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where I made the transition into filmmaking, which led me to, to making Vandal. When I graduated, when I left high school, I was in Gainesville studying advertising. That's what I thought. Oh, what a better way to incorporate the art world and a career to make money. I didn't, you know, graffiti was different at the time. Now you can make it a career. 
Well, yeah, we're, oh, well, we're seeing that with, with our Basil this Yeah, weekend. I was just in Winwood yesterday with uh, um, uh, Moishimana, mm-hmm. who, you know, helped to develop yeah. Winwood, And, you know, he gave a speech about, you know, neighborhoods and maintaining the integrity of neighborhoods. And, you know, that's what he's all about. And that's how Winwood, you know, kind of came up because it was, a, sure. it was a graffiti haven. My, my aunt used to own a warehouse in the heart of Winwood, which Moishi Man ended up buying it from her. Mm. And all through high school, my very first job ever was pushing boxes in oh. her, in, through high school, in her warehouse. <laughs> so I was going there at night and bombing all those shutters and all those streets with my friend who also was pushing boxes with me too because... We discovered when we're like, what is this neighborhood? Winwood neighborhood. <laughs> so many buildings. There's all these warehouses. There's all these shutters. The, you know, at night it's all crackheads and like it's because that's that's like a playground for graffiti artists, an area yeah. that's not very policed. That's kind of gangster. Police don't even want to come. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's like free reign. Not a lot of people walking around. So I used to push boxes there during the day and and come back at night and just vandalize all the shutters plus I wanted to see myself up on the way to work oh right uh, so <laughs> bombing the shit out of window yeah uh, you know and pushing boxes during the day there was nothing there it was all warehouses uh, clothing textiles manufacturing really there was nothing there this is when I was in high school so you're talking 97 to 2000 yeah absolutely nothing nothing that you see there not even an inkling that that was on the way Wow, there, you, there wasn't. That. Well, they ha- and it happened so fast, you know. Between I really, uh, Goldman is, is Goldman, yeah. Between right. Moishimana and and, and um, Tony Goldman. Goldman. Moishimana came later. Goldman, yeah, Goldman yeah. was first. The guy. Yeah, Tony yeah. Goldman was yeah, first. Yeah, because he was known He's for that. that you know, he, he did it in New York. Yeah, uh, and Ocean Drive and, and Ocean Drive, South Beach, right? The Art yeah. Deco scene, and then his last project before he passed away was obviously Winwood. Absolutely, yeah. And and Jessica Goldman's done such a good job of carrying the torch. Yeah, yeah. she actually helped me out in um, my project, the Beach. Chronicles, even though nice. just animated, yeah, you know, we used Winwood walls, yeah, and you need to get permission. Anyone that uses Winwood walls, you need to get permission, yeah. right? And so, um, I got connected to Jessica and I asked her, you know, like, do I have to get in touch with all these artists? And she's like, don't worry, we'll get in touch with all of them for you. I was like, oh, my God, you know, that's like a producer's dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first person to sign their contract for uh, for the film was Shepard Fairey. Nice. And so I saw him, like, on the street, you know, doing, not on the, on the street, you know, like, hanging on. He was doing a mural. And I came up and I thanked him, you know, because I'm like, wow, man, that's great. You know, you were the first person. He's like, no, because, you know, artists support support artists. And so, but, you know, Winwood Walls kind of, you know, built up and came up around that entire, you know, graffiti. And not that it legitimized graffiti, you know, but... It did. Man. It did. I mean, okay, so, like, back to my crossroad, right? I'm like, okay, well, graffiti's not a real career. I got to think of something real that I can actually make money yeah. doing. And that's what led me to advertising. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I don't want to learn how to sell products. I want to, like, make movies. And hmm. and I started watching movies like Mean Streets and, you know, Amore Perros and those movies. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Oh, holy crap. I'm in the wrong industry. I got to be making things like this. Wow. Right. And then that's when I decided to, to, to bounce out of Gainesville and, and University of Florida just because they didn't have, like, a film program. It was more right. like journalism, advertising. A uh, little bit of TV, so I ended up getting a scholarship to University of Miami. 
I wrote a long ass letter and a screenplay sample and some ideas and I'm probably a blabbering long like statement or thesis not thesis but you know like entrance right right like thing you gotta write and and I got a 75% scholarship and that's it I packed up my stuff I drove back to Miami and I'm like all right, I'm in the film business I'm going to film school wow yeah Yeah, it was rowdy but that's it was graffiti was my thing and then immediately it became film yeah because it's still that creative sort of visual getting people's attention getting people to you know I think a good graffiti artist knows how to tell a story yeah as well so it's a visual medium in the film business at the core of it you're pushing people to come watch your movie Mm -hmm. it's the marketing part after okay you made the movie great now I gotta get people to come see my movie right so with graffiti it's like okay I want people to know my name I want people to see my shit I'm gonna go bomb this rooftop that's facing US 1 mm-hmm. alright it's, it's the same way as saying alright let's get that billboard yeah. the movie's coming out next week let's buy that billboard yeah um, yeah. in a sense right yeah. it's not the same thing yeah. I'll but, climb up and bomb your billboard right 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 I'm paying you for it but there's a marketing aspect to it and, and, and a big <laughs> business you know aspect to it as well right but I, so I want to get into Magic City Memoirs yep. I think was a seminal moment for sure, for sure. That was that and was in terms of marketing too, because I right. think you guys sold out what was now the Olympia Theater, but was the Gusman. You know, yeah. so can you just talk about the you know that whole time? But that, but that was shortly after film school, no? Or yeah. More? So I went film school, and then when I jumped into film school, I'll never forget. Before I had ever taken a filmmaking class, I was a PA on a movie called Hoot, which was mm-hmm. uh, based on a Carl Hyacin book, and it was executive produced by Jimmy Buffett. That was my very first paid gig. Wow. That Simi, Simi Wine called me, mm. and I was a PA. I had already interned on the Transporter 2 and Dex. Actually, no, Dexter was a paid gig, but I'd done the Transporter 2 where I met EK, the legendary EK. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I used to serve lunch to, to that whole production office, and I, and I was an intern. I was in school at the time, but I, I just wanted to hang around there. I, I thought EK and Simi and all these people were the most fascinating people I had ever seen. I was like, wow, the, they're just sitting here, like, running the movie from this office, yeah. basically. <laughs> Command center. Yeah, production like, office. What the hell is this place? <laughs> like, right when I walked in, it was like, a, it had the energy of, like, a stock trading firm that mm. you see, like, in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Like, people are running around, phones are ringing. I'll never forget the, in, the, the PA that hired me, basically. Right when I walked in, he goes, hey, you're the intern, JD? Cool. Sit there. Every time the phone rings, say production, press hold, and just look at me and tell me who it is. Cool? All right. I did that for Whoa. like seven hours. Wow. Like, production. <laughs> hey, this is a, okay, tell them that. Okay. Wow. And, and I was like, I was sold right there. I'm like, oh, I love this. This is what I want to do. This Show is- business has an energy to it, I yeah. think. Especially Certainly. production. Film yeah. production has an energy to it. Yeah. So fast. Yeah. yeah. So I, I interned on the Transporter 2, and then I was a PA on Hoot. And I'll never forget on who it was a production supervisor from LA, uh, Kimberly Rock, and she won. You know, she she was very cool, and that's I think she instilled in me what I try to do for younger filmmakers in the sense of like always trying to give time and questions. Mm. I was there like loading water into like the kitchen, doing like the most ridiculous PA lowly task, and she looked at me one time and she's like, "Hey, I used to do that too." Don't worry about it. You'll become a big producer, whatever you want to be. Like, what do you want to be? And I'm like, oh, yeah, producer. I'm actually, I have a short film I'm trying to do. And she's like, oh, yeah? Can I read it? And I was like, sure. I gave her the short film script that I was producing at UM. She read it and called Kodak 
and Kodak donated me like three rolls of film. Remember, those oh, digital yeah. wasn't popping then. Yeah, right. you had to still shoot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I come from film. From, film, from filmmaking on film. Yeah. And uh, so I had done Jamaica Motel, which was this short film. Uh, which while still at UM with um, my previous partner Aaron who had directed it I produced it um, and it was great because when we made it at the time English language Hispanic authentic Miami wasn't like a thing it yeah. was like what what had come before us that was like recent like Bad Boys Too Fast Too Furious mm. there were no like I don't know more contemporary examples of like real Miami stories Things were either in Spanish or they were in English. Mm. So we came out with Jamaican Motel. It was great. We debuted at the Miami Short Film Festival. Uh, got a lot of press. We got a lot of press um, between the locals, like the Ocean Drive, the Miami Herald and stuff. But then one one thing hit for us, which was, it was an accident. Our, our, our actress at the time, Michelle Lepi, she had just gotten a job on the Good Night Show on PBS. And one of our interns on IMDb listed her character name as prostitute. But she was really an undercover cop posing as a prostitute in the movie. But just, they put the Michelle Lepi prostitute. <laughs> they were doing their due diligence on her PBS because they had oh, had no. an issue. Oh! They had had an issue with the previous host who had just done these spoofs, these PSA announcement spoof videos about advocating anal sex. Total joke, yeah. but YouTube had just come out. So right. all these videos oh. that, I, that, that people probably never thought would be seen would land out there. It was so, one of the first viral videos. Pretty much. So PBS <laughs> fired her because of those that videos. Sucks. Hired Michelle Lepi. Then they see it says prostitute, and then this whole thing broke out. I got a wow. call from PBS's legal department. I'm there in the University of Miami studying for a fight. They thought you were a pimp. No, no, I'm joking. They're more like, we want to see a copy of the movie. Right, right, right. You know, right. prostitute, this yeah. whole thing. PBS does a press release explaining the whole thing. Like, the ombudsman, they're like, they're independent arbiter of the company, did a whole release talking about me, Aaron, the movie, Michelle, everything. And the New York Times picked it up. Wow. And oh. ran it. Wow. About this controversial thing with this movie in Miami. It was... That's great. I'm in film school, man. And then I get a phone call from an agent at William Morris. And when they had the Miami Beach office back then, Raul. Uh, Raul. No, no, it's Raul Mateo. Raul Mateo. His office. I don't remember the name of his number two, but he called me. He's like, hey, I just. Eric Robner was there at one point. Yeah, there was a bunch of people that came to that office. Um, Albert Garcia was one of the junior guys. I remember that office. It was close to Monty's. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, It was around Washington. William Morris Agency. Yeah, it was a real agency. Yeah. Yeah. Agency. Yeah. So they called with interest because they had read the New York Times. And um, that's what got my head going as to like, okay, I'm graduating film school. Now I got to develop a feature. I got to make a feature film. So we spent a long time and a lot of money um, trying to develop Jamaica Motel as a feature film. And that was right around the time I met Brett Ratner, who... For better or worse, you know, he's going through his share of controversy these days. Hmm. He, he's been a mentor to me. Okay. And always a guy that gave me that time. That 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 
advice like when I didn't know anything I was coming straight out of film school I'm like I'm making this short into a feature I met with him in Miami Beach and I basically told him I'm making this and I'm doing this and when you know how hard the game is yeah. you kind of look at a guy like me like oh that's cute man you're so excited <laughs> you know like I, I could sense it he's like alright man alright you're gonna do it I'm like hey look I got the money I got the commitments I got this guy writing the script I got it. he's like alright cool and he gave me like Stephen Bauer's phone number he's like alright call Stephen this is his agent's number oh you gotta call this guy this guy he wrote a bunch of phone numbers yeah I mean for someone like Brett Ratner that's that's nothing you know but for someone who's coming up oh that's it's everything like, it's everything it's that's right everything yeah and, access and, and since that point all the way through to the corporation Brett was still giving me the time like the advice the, the, the energy I'll, I'll get into that later when we talk about the corporation but that was like the first domino and I was on a I was on a roll like I had raised a couple million in commitments I had real hard cash opened an office got the script going and just as everyone suffered when the real estate market crashed mm. my investors were all real estate right so they all kind of pulled out so it was like slowly tumbling and tumbling and tumbling down the real estate market crashes all the investors pull out we're like we're, we're like done so I, I, I told um, my partner at the time, Aaron, and I was just like, hey, like, we should probably think about doing like a, a smaller film, you know, like something we can actually make. Mm. And um, that's where the idea for Magic City Memoirs came. It came from a, a, a colossal failure, right? right. Which as, as you get older, you hear these successful people talk about like, oh, you learn all your lessons from failures. Every failure leads you to this next thing. Magic City Memoirs was a direct derivative of a complete failure. Yeah, but you know what? I personally don't look at these situations as failures. I don't either. Because I guess I'm just using the term. Because right. if you don't have those, and, th- and that's the thing, every successful person has these stories. Yeah. And that's what shapes you and what molds you. For you sure. know, when we uh, interviewed Gregory Allen Howard last week, you know, we asked him, hey, if you look back, you know, he's like, no, I needed all of that. He's a writer, you yeah. know, so you need those knocks yeah. to, th- but to help does. him get to that yeah. point. There's but everyone needs them. Yeah. yeah, everyone in the industry gets denied, denied until finally something breaks through. That was that knock. And right. Magic City Memoirs happened. The script was great. Uh, we found the money. We put together a cast of really friends and, and affiliates and acquaintances. Um and it's it was amazing a lot of the people that were in that movie have gone on to do awesome things yeah so but at the time it was our first foray into making films in Miami hmm. Sandy Leiterman worked for Jeff Peel uh, Robert Parente was the right. the guy in the city of Miami Graham Winnick was in Miami Graham Beach Graham Winnick was in Miami Beach they all Beach. worked together it was yeah, cool. yeah yeah it was it was, was kind of glorious times in the sense of like if you came up in this game, you know these names. Yeah, because you know. the town was busy at the time. Very busy. A lot yeah. of I did have a question. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, was Magic City Memoirs semi-autobiographical? Yeah. yeah, so it was a mix between myself and Aaron's kind of experiences uh, in high school. Mm-hmm. Like a, a total the, the private shop. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. M- me and Aaron had uh, gone to school, St. St. Brendan's. We okay. knew each other from, from high school, yeah. St. Brendan's. Mm-hmm. So it, it, was a, it was a mix of like... A lot of his stories, his friends, his stuff, my stories, my friends, my stuff. Um, it totally was. And I think that's why it resonated so much with people in Miami, because I think it really was one of the first times that like Cuban Americans in Miami who had been in that scene saw that on camera in such a real way. I mean, we, we 
We went with the Dallas, the Bros, the Buck, all the slang. We didn't pull back on anything. It right. was straight up. Very authentic. It was. It, it, it was. It is. Yeah, it's very, yeah. very authentic. Yeah. It absolutely was. Um, and it was great. I remember it was uh, Chayla Plant's first year in the Miami Film Festival. Right. And I remember, you know, having a phone call with him. You know, with him kind of asking me, like, all right, well, you know, I like the movie, but, you know, what are your thoughts? What are your ideas? Like, I want to put it in the festival, but, and, and I was just like, Jay, you got to give this the Guzman Friday, 7 p.m. This movie is the Miami movie. I'm telling you, everyone's going to come out. What a producer. I, I was. I was telling <laughs> him, look, man, this is like it's your first year. What a way to come out with a bang. This movie, I'm telling you, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, people are, people want this one. People want this one. You know, Andy Garcia was super supportive. Uh, you know, all the cast members were supportive. So, like, I was telling you. The Jay, Andy Garcia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. He, was he, he had a producer role, right? He was an executive producer right, yeah. of the film. So uh, everyone was willing to come out and support it. So I also, you know, that was important to Jay, I'm sure. Like, okay, the whole cast, Andy, everyone will come out and support it. And I did let him know, like, yeah, that's the case. So, you know, props to Jay that he, he rolled the dice on a small movie, gave us that Friday night slot, that 7 p.m., Gave us such a huge stage. Yeah, um, a Friday. That's like prime time. Yeah, yeah. I, I was there that night. Oh, yeah. I was there. Yeah. Well, leading up to it, we sold out that theater, one thousand five hundred seats, yeah. in like two days. It was yeah. packed. And for our listeners, Gusman is like one of the premier venues. Um, it was actually renovated by Sylvester Stallone, you know, back in the day. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful, gorgeous, you one know, of the old, back to yeah. the 1930s. They used to call the movie palaces. 1940s, yeah, yeah, movie palaces. Yeah, it's so a beautiful place. To sell the Gusman out, yeah. you know, you really have to. But what was great that night, and you know, obviously you were there, you know, but there was just a unique energy of having that many people watching a movie about them in their town that you just, you don't feel when you see other movies. And, and you know, the, right? this is what I was saying about the authentic part. Even people who are not necessarily Necessarily, you know, Cuban, but you could feel that slice, that life of it. Oh, so, for sure. Sorry, I mean, to, sorry to interrupt you. Mm. And 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 credit to the cast, the director, you know, other everyone, everyone involved in that, put everything they had into it. Um, and everyone wanted to, you know, so many houses donated for free, mm-hmm. cars, locations. That I, that to this day, I've never been a part of a project that people wanted to give more to and didn't ask for anything in return. So. Yeah, it was great, and, and, and like the premiere was amazing. I remember we sold out three more screenings mm. at the Regal. I, I told Jay, if you can keep selling them out, we'll keep doing it. We'll, we'll keep you can add as many screenings as you need. Nice. So we sold out three more screenings. That that was like that was really special to see like Miami come out for that movie. Yeah, uh, and it, it was a really great experience. And, and that's kind of that first film that got me in the game in LA you know that's when I first started spending time in Los Angeles Hmm. Um, remember it was 2010 when we were showing that movie around it was a new concept for buyers and agents an English language Hispanic film interesting you don't know how many of these meetings I was in were like the movie's so Hispanic yet it's not at all in Spanish New concept. Why? Because the, the the lingo was so authentic. It was so Miami. Mm. Say, oh yeah, dale, bro. You know that sounds pretty Hispanic. What is right. that? English and Spanish. So that was really my first foray into like Los Angeles and Hollywood and how the town works and how they receive you and 
Um, it seems a lot of curiosity, but it doesn't seem like like it's hard for them to understand though. At the same time, at right? the time, at I, the I time. mean, actually, still today, <laughs> right? They're, they're, it's it's gotten better, but it's been slow. You know, Pitbull you, has helped with the Dale, I'm sure. Oh yeah, nah, Pitbull's huge, man. You know, Pitbull showed a light-skinned, blue-eyed Latino who talks the same way as a dark-skinned Latino, right? Right. Talk the same, sound the same, are about the same things. One's light-skinned with blue eyes, one's, like, brown-skinned. It, it kind of showed the, the, the world, like, oh, oh, okay. Like, even if you're not brown-skinned, you're very Latino. You're very Hispanic. But right. also, you right. know, and there is this notion, you know, there is a term Latinx now, mm-hmm. you know, which encapsulates, you know, the diaspora. Mm. But really... You know, there's so many different cultures within the diaspora, and oftentimes, you know, the default could be, oh, well, it's just this nationality, or it's that nationality, or it's that nationality, you know, this particular culture. When, you know, there's so many different cultures under the umbrella, you know? So, this slice of life, showing this slice of life, um, certainly was unique and, you know, groundbreaking. For sure. I mean, from from the film, you know, we played at other film festivals. We won other awards at other places. Every theater always packed. People crying. People coming up after talking about, oh, my God, like Puerto Ricans in New York, Span- you know, Spaniards in Spain and Ibiza will come mm. up and be like, wow, that movie was so touching and I could relate to it. It was so universal. And from the festival <clears throat> circuit, that got us um, a deal at Fox to turn the, the movie into a scripted TV show. Mm-hmm which is how I got into the television business. Hmm. Um, so, actually, shout out to Cesar Conde. I, you know, I met him at a, at a party, we were introduced by friends. I sent him the movie, he watched it, loved it, forwarded it to a colleague who forwarded it to Diego Suarez, who was running uh, Fox TV Studios at the time. Remember, there was no fusion, there was no, um, What's the name of Robert Rodriguez's network? Uh, El Rey. El Rey, yeah. There were no English language, Hispanic channels, right? That didn't exist. So Cesar felt like this needed to get somewhere and, and, and people needed to see it. And that's how I got in at Fox TV Studios. Diego loved the movie. We, you know, optioned it from us to turn it and put it into development to make it a scripted series. Which was pretty awesome. Like, hey, now I'm in the scripted TV business at, with Fox at a high level, and yeah. Fox Network ended up commissioning two screen scripts to be written. So we were in a couple development cycles there, and it was a great it was a great experience for the career in that sense. Um, so, Magic business. City Memoirs, you move into. Do you start your own company from there, or do you... I've always had there? my own company. Um, or the company that you have now. Or? Yeah, well, you know, variations throughout the years. Um, me, me and Aaron had a production company where we did Jamaica Motel, Magic City Memoirs. We went our own ways. I So even in film school, you guys started a company. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's great for, you know, we you know for our listeners, you know, we try to outreach to everyone. But definitely for people that are just starting and getting into the business, you know, that's a great notion that when you start, you think of it seriously, you know, start a company. Oh, yeah. you know, no doubt. I mean, if there's any whenever I'm asked for advice or they want, you know, for any filmmaker, it was given to me early by the producers of Hoot, people like Kimberly Rock and Kevin Reedy, the guys that ran that production, they would tell me, don't waste time. Like, 
any movie that you're going to make in film school, you should try to make it a calling card for you out in the world so you can have something to show, kind of speed this process up. Another thing that was told to me is learn how to raise money. Like, oh, don't, yeah. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> if you're in this business and you're a producer, you got to learn how to knock on the doors and raise money because there's no other way to make films. You can't make films for free. Not good yeah. ones. You're so right. I learned early on, oh, well, okay, this is like, I got to raise money. I got to like be professional and... Yeah, I, I always had my eye on business, and that, that's how I came in this this business. It wasn't really, of course, it was creative because anyone in this game has creative aspirations. But I wanted to come in as a producer through the business side. I was like, well, that's what what I can do here, and I researched. How do you start a company? How do you go about it? And like, like literally, nobody taught me how to do that stuff. And film school at the time was not teaching you the business of film. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I really, it was really just, okay, I got to start a company. Okay, I need a name. Oh, I need to incorporate it. It was really just like Google searching everything. <laughs> right. But yeah, absolutely. A- any advice I give to even actors, actors, like will ask me, oh, what should I do? And I'd be like, start developing your material now. Yeah. I'm talking actors Your brand. Like 20 yeah. years old or 18 yeah. what's the best move for me start a company start reading the Hollywood Reporter and Variety every day you yeah. need to know every deal that's coming and happening deadline.com you, you, know, you need to yeah. start developing I, I say look at Leo DiCaprio look at his production company he's developing all the stuff he's making that's huge look at Reese Witherspoon she's developing all the material she's making that's so important for actors and same thing for producers or directors right get your company settled start your brand early um that's great advice yeah because I always say in Hollywood the two most important currencies are talent and intellectual property absolutely that's what they deal in yeah so if you either have it or have access to it they want to talk to you if not <laughs> Sorry. I mean, why, why are we talking to you? It's a very, it's still a very close town. So sure. if they cannot deal with you, they would rather. Absolutely. <laughs> this is They're, coming from right. someone who worked at one of the biggest agencies, yeah. Yeah. JL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't look. They're not. No one in Hollywood is in the business of uh, friends for no reason. Mm. There's not many. I luckily yeah. have met some of those people, and I keep them close forever because those are the people you keep. Yeah. But I'm also not mad at the people that aren't like that. Only so many hours in the day, right? That's what they teach at the agents. Hey, Mm -hmm. there's only so many hours in the day. Here's the priority list of clients that make you money. And right, if you don't make them money, you're at the bottom of the list. That's just the way the game goes. No, you're right. So, Magic City Memoirs, then you move on to your next project. Yeah, so in the timeline, there was a gap of like between Magic City Memoirs and actually making Vandal like six or seven years where yeah, right. on the filmography there's nothing but I was deep into television um, into unscripted television yeah and oh, wow. this is interesting because you know a lot of people's concept is you know there's a gap in time they don't see anything necessarily produced but there's a lot of work that oh, goes into God. not even producing your next project of course. but there's things that you're doing that's the television business yeah so can you talk and, a little bit about business, that business right yeah. like it takes so long to get these films off the ground on an independent level, even at a studio level. It just takes long. So the prolific producers and directors have a film every year. That's when you're, that's the dream. You're balling. You're in production for 20 years, mm. right? But for other people that it's like you're getting in the game, you're getting it going. Yeah, there's gaps in the filmography, but that's also could, could be that you were in TV like I was. I, I was absolutely balling in television and unscripted. We were at the time repped at WME. Um, you know, we had the Fox deal going. We had uh, a pilot we were shooting at MTV. 
We had another pilot at TBS, another project at TNT. We, we were so deep into Unscripted, and it was... We were so busy for three years. And what happened, all these projects got super close and didn't go forward at the end. Yeah. That's where you have a five-year gap in your filmography where nothing is, is, is there. That doesn't mean you weren't making money. That doesn't mean you weren't super close. Like, we had a, 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 a doc series. Well, reality television is what they called it back then. Now it's all doc series. <laughs> right. But we had one on Lil John the Rapper. We were doing oh. a show on him and his family. Kind of like a Run's House meets Lil John. Yeah. We shot the pilot. It was awesome. TBS loved it. They gave us an eight episode order. We were like, oh my God, we did it. And then at the last minute, Lil John pulled out. Oh, oh wow. Well, dude. they can't do anything about that. Nope. That's why the unscripted business is so challenging because it's real people and how yeah. they feel, right? Right. Scripted, yeah. scripted. It's right. not about real people. Even in the development phase, you know, we have a couple of projects and, you know, it's like, oh, wow, you don't own that tattoo shop anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Oh, that tattoo artist just blew up and now, or you know, you have to fire them? They're not friends anymore. Right. They don't want to be on the show. We right. had another one called uh, The Key, which was like uh, The Hills meets Miami. And that one was like so close to being greenlit. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, like so close. And um, you, when you say key, you're like talking about Key Biscayne. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was nice. called the key. Yeah. So, right. Um, so so I spent a long time in television, and how we say the pitfalls lead you to the next thing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just get into that a little bit. Yeah. At the time, I was in LA. You know, two to three weeks of every month, I was doing back back and forth, heavy, heavy, um, and. Uh, there was something that happened during that period that, you know, helped me later. And that was, I think you you guys have heard the story about that party I snuck into. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's legendary. You have because to tell- the, cor- the corporation happened before Vandal. Okay, right? yeah, so... so- to introduce the corporation, right? Yeah. But we need and to hear we need to hear that party story for us. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course, we got to hear the party story. <laughs> so, so the idea for Vandal starts in film school at the University of Miami in two thousand five. I had already been thinking of it. That's the reason I went to film school. Yeah. Like, okay, I went from graffiti to filmmaker. Yeah. Now I got to make a movie about graffiti. I wrote it as a short film. It got it got picked up like because that's how it works in film school. Twenty five people write a script. Teacher picks five, puts you in groups. Go make the short films. Vandal got picked. I shelved Vandal in order to go make Jamaica Motel with Aaron. And Vandal just sat there as a 15-page short film that I wrote for over a decade. But always in the back of my head, same thing. The corporation comes to me in the Miami University of Miami library. I'm having a coffee. Still have never taken a filmmaking class. And I'm reading the Miami Herald. It says, Cuban Godfather arrested at sea. That simple. That's how that's how it came to me. And I was just like, wow, okay. I spent the next two weeks researching in that library. I remember it was a Christmas break, so the library was dead. And I was there solo every day researching in the computer because Google was like around, but not what it is now. So you had to like get the information on the computer and go to the microfilm and find the actual newspaper copies from that year, that day, and print it out on Xerox. So I literally scooped up a pile of papers like this, lugged them to the crib, and just read it, and it was just like two weeks later, I was like, wow, this is the Cuban Godfather. I found the Cuban Godfather. Wow. And that's kind of where the inception of the project happened. So imagine, fast forward all the way to 2012, I think, 2012, maybe 2013. Um... At the time, I had already been 
chipping away on this forever. Like, I, I had gotten the, the President's Commission report, which was a, a printout of this commission at the state of New Jersey issued to talk about organized crime and the Cuban mafia. It's like border, like like that scene in The Godfather 2 where Michael goes and has to speak at the commission, the, the subpoena. Yeah. That actually happened in real life on Jose Miguel Battle and the corporation, the Cuban mafia. Wow. So I read the transcripts from that and I highlighted all the names of the people, the players, the, the attorney, the you know, the detective and I was going after them for years. Like wow. Years. I was I was calling the Miami Dade Police Department monthly asking for a guy named David Shanks who was in the report, who I had heard was the guy that took him down. On the weekends, I would go to the Cuban Nostalgia Festival over there in Tamiami. I'll never forget, I walked over there and I saw these Bay of Pigs veterans <laughs> sitting there with their sashes and their hats. And I asked them, oh, have you heard of the name Jose Miguel Battle? And they're like, oh my God, Batley was a hero. Saved, saved our lives out there. I was like, wow, that was the first time I learned that this, you know, Mafia Don, this Cuban, was also a hero in the Bay of Pigs. So I was just spending any time I had looking into it, researching, and just amassing people. Like um, his attorney, Jack Blumenfeld, was the first guy I connected with who was an advisor to me, who led me to David Shanks, who was the detective that did an investigation for 18 years that took these guys down. I connected with him. He was writing a memoir on the investigation. He agrees to option it to us. Um, and then, so so this kind of was going on for four, five, six, seven years already, leading up to the day that I, I snuck into this big Hollywood producer's birthday party. Uh, a friend of mine was friends with him. He was on the list. He said, okay, you can sneak in with the DJ. I arranged for the DJ to, you know, to spin. Like, okay, I'm like, man, I don't know about this. This doesn't sound too good. I don't really like sneaking into places. Like, hey, trust me, everyone's going to be there. You, you you have to go. It'll change your life. I'm like, okay. So I did. I snuck in, and at the party, I, I end up meeting Benicio Del Toro randomly. He was wearing a hat backwards that I thought was a dolphin hat. It wasn't. <laughs> And I like smacked him on the back. I'm like, oh, hey, you dolphin fan? And he heard my accent. He's like, oh, hey, no. <laughs> Puerto Rico. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't Puerto Rico logo on. But he heard my accent. So we just started, like, started talking Spanish to each other. And like, you know, we had a little bit, you know. What, what, where was the party? Right. In LA, in, right? In LA. In LA. At the Mr. C Hotel. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so we're, you know, we're connecting a little, little drunk. He was talking Spanish, the whole thing. And yeah, I told him, I was like, hey, Benny, I have a project. We're, we're going to win an Oscar together. It's called The Corporation. And it's about all, you know, all this, which I haven't mentioned yet, just for your listeners to know. Um, the Corporation was the name of this Cuban mafia syndicate that was active in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way to the 2000s. And it was started by a guy named Jose Miguel Battle, who was a vice officer in Cuba for Batista. So he was the bag man to collect the money from Mayor Lansky, Lucky Luciano, Santo Traficante. Um, so that's where he learns of like Bolita and mobsters and that whole kind of both sides of the law type of world. He comes to the United States, goes back to Cuba, 
fighting the Bay of Pigs invasion, saves 30 men's, uh, 30 of his men's lives, like, heroically. A, a really amazing story that it was, like, all odds, all, all, all odds stacked against them, and he was advised not to go into the jungle, that they were, they were left for dead. Castro's people, they were surrounded, and he said, I'm not leaving my guys behind. Jumped in a truck with two other soldiers, some guns, and drove in the middle of the night through the mangroves, an hour and a half out to go get them and I know how scary it is because I drove down that, that that exact mangrove one way in one way out dirt road in Covadonga in Cuba that I went there to research this film I, I went down this road during the day and I was scared I can't imagine doing that at night so were you telling Benicio de Toro this story? Not, I mean no, because I went to Cuba much later. Right. Actually, after our... Deal. No, yeah, but the, the actual story. Oh, I'm telling about... him about battle. I'm telling him who battle is, what this is about. It's it's Bolita is, is what the game is. Like, for this mafia syndicate, they ran Bolita in New York. Which was um, essentially the lotto before the lotto was legal. It's something yes. to that effect. Yes, yeah. it's it's balls. Right. L- Bolita, little what, balls. What black people call the numbers. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's the same no. thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it was illegal back then, but it, it was always played in Cuba and Puerto Rico. Rico, it was our culture. It was right. just something yeah. that everyone played. That and cockfighting. Yeah. Well, Battle's a huge cockfighter. So, you, so you're in the party, you're talking to Benicio. I'm telling him this whole story, and he's like, wow. You know, I had, because I had said, yeah, I know, I know you hear this all the time, you know, about, you know, but we're going to win an Oscar together. And he was like, yeah, no, I do hear that all the time. The Oscar part. But not all that other stuff about <laughs> right. battle. Right. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Let's let's set up a meeting. Let's do this. Wow. So, yeah, a couple weeks later, I was you know at LBI Entertainment at his manager's company meeting with him. We we met for three and a half hours. Totally hit it off. I mean, he's the coolest guy. Like truly, of all the people, celebrities, and like people that you know of, of prominence, you know, press wise. He was really cool, very down to earth, um, and and he loved the story, just loved it. Like he's like, I'm in. Like let me know what you need from me. You know, I told him about David Shanks, the manuscript. He had advised you should get someone to turn that into a book. You know, mm-hmm. it's a thousand pages written by a cop. I'm sure it's amazing stories, but probably doesn't read. You know, like something yeah. that, that an executive is going to give the time to read. It's a thousand pages, what it was. So. So that happens in 2013. Every single pilot I have doesn't move forward. The, the the two cycles of development at Fox dry up. They get passed on twice. It's a whole other story about like development in Hollywood and television business. We'll have you for a round two for that. Yeah, yeah. that's a whole other... The more infrastructure stuff. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Huh? But everything I'm working on doesn't work out. Everything is just like past. So... It was just like time to come back to Miami, shut the company down. Investors are like, hey, we had a good run. We almost got there. You know, hey, props. All right. So I, I literally had to shut the company down, fire. All my friends are working with me, fire all. Not even fire, just like we looked at each other. <laughs> Sorry, bro. It's over. Right. It's right. We're not bombing anything <laughs> anytime in the future. This thing's done. Yeah. Uh, and everyone can relate to that in the, in the game because you get yeah. so close and it doesn't happen. And that's it. So I, I moved back to Miami, and I was a little beat up by the game. I was like, wow, man, like, these three years of, like, it was like rocket, rockets, final, WME, uh, MTV, TBS, Benicio, Fox, fuck. 
God, nothing happens. Nothing, nothing happened at all. It all. So I come back here, and I'm kind of like thinking about getting out of the business because this business will it, it will punch you in the oh, face. Oh yeah, where is you know it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this was the second time I had thought about getting out of the business. The first time was 28 2008 before I made Magic City Memoirs, and the real estate, you know, boom, took us out. So this is the second time. You only have one more time. One, two, three. (laughs) At this point, I'm all in, dude. I'm all in. But that was like the second time the business kind of punched me in the face and I was thinking about getting out of it. I remember I was here. I was working uh, for Olay Communications, which owns HBO Latin America and all the... You know, the, these cable channels in Latin America. I was working for um, a friend of mine who, who owned a production company within that Olay Communications. And from there, I, it was six months, and then that was it. I was out. It was like key cards. It was a very corporate right. vibe. And I was just like, nah, I don't want to You were do punching that. numbers again. It, punching a I clock. Had, I had never really done that before right. in my life. That was the closest I ever got to it, which is right. like champagne problems that I'm here complaining about. <laughs> But anyways, I I left that situation and I like legit was contemplating, you know, what my next move was. I was like, "Ah, I don't, you know, this is about 2014. I want to say early 2014. Okay. Five years ago, dude. And I remember I met my current partner, Tony Gonzalez, who we have a company called Exilium. We've we've had it since 2014. And he was a, a guy who is a guy who has been in the tire business his whole life and had a lot of success. Uh, at the time, he had sold a big part of his company to Penske and, you know, he had a lot of money and he had always had this creative side that he always wanted to to express. I mean, tires, there's only so much creativity you can interject into that business. It's pretty much numbers and volume and anyway, so, so Tony was getting into the music business, started a label and wanted to do a, a music video. So he hired me to produce the video, and I was hesitant. Like, I was just like, nah, I don't do music videos. I don't even know that I want to do anything in this business anymore. I was really like a, I was beat up. I was like, really, in many ways. Uh, And doing that music video, it was the craziest thing ever. I mean, he pumped hundreds of thousands of dollars into this music video. Oh, wow. It was literally a guy who was like, this is fun. I'm new in this game. I don't know if I'm ever going to make another one, so fuck it. Let's go. Right. And it was like one of the funnest experiences I had ever had in the game, producing anything. It was a three-day shoot. And I hired all my people that I've worked with throughout the years, brought them back. Oh, great. Wow. That's that's awesome. Like, I hired all my my peeps, and it was such a fun experience. And that's what it takes sometimes to, 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 to get the love back. Yeah. It mm-hmm. takes one, like, good experience to be like, wait, I know why I like this. Mm. I know why I love this. You know, because when you're in development, or you, you could go a couple of years not shooting anything. It's yeah. just yeah, yeah. phone calls, emails, meetings, contracts, money. Well, that's know. a big part of, you know, what we want to do here is, you know, demystify a lot of this. You know, and we certainly didn't want to have a podcast where it kind of talked over people's heads yeah and you know kind of strip it away and this is really cool because and this really reminds me of the you know our last podcast last week Gregory Allen Howard who you know he wrote Harriet which he wrote 26 years ago wow you know and so people don't understand why it takes time you know for these things to 
matriculate. Well, what so, he explained was that the climate had to change. The, the climate in order had for to that change. Movie yeah. to get made. For sure. And, 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 yeah. and, you know, he mentioned that he was in a meeting where Julie Roberts was suggested to play Harriet Tubman by an executive. Much different know? climate. So that was a different climate. But, but in general, you know, it, it it's, take, so it, fun, you know, these man. things, right. these things take the time. Cra- so this is, this you, is fascinating. You yeah. will hear the craziest things in these meetings in Los Angeles. Man. Right. It's nuts. Well, that's a podcast, I, that's that's a podcast in itself. I, that's not even surprising. I can see JD in that meeting and the guy saying, I think Tom Hanks can play Jose Miguel. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, during that, to this day, but during that time, like 2012, I would purposefully go into meetings and not change my accent a bit. I would say the dollars, say the bros, say da, da, da. Obviously, always respectful. I don't cuss in meetings. Right. But I didn't curb my, my, my accent a bit. I oh. was like, nah, I, I want them to know who I am, where I'm from, what I'm about. That's great. That's always been my deal just because, and that's why I've always had the f- been able to stand out. Mm-hmm. So I've always put Miami on my, on my front shirt. I'm from Miami. I'm Cuban. I mean, probably not the best business decision, but if you look at my slate, it's like all Miami, it's all Cuban. I mean, actually, that's not true in the sense that we have some other things we're doing that are not, but it's all Latino. It's all Hispanic. Yeah, but it's, but but it is, and and this is a marker, you know, with Magic City Memoirs, you know, you kind of broke a mold in a way. And so I think that that's really interesting. And that's why we're talking about the buildup, you know, your history. Yeah. Because now it's making a different kind of wave, you know? So I I want, I want to catch up to, to, uh, Gregory Allen Howard is you Gregory yeah. Allen Howard yeah to his point it's like you start something and then 20 years later you don't know where the world's gonna be it's like a little seed that you yeah. plant and you hope the world turns in a certain way at the time that you're ready to make that right um, and yeah. that's, that's happened a couple times to me um but yeah, to to I guess where were we in the time? Well, basically well, we're now, so we're back to the corporation. You got Tony Gonzalez. Wait, you got, we just made a music video. They had a ton of fun, so you were on your way out. On my way out, and, and like, then they, they sucked pulled me back in, <laughs> pulled me right back in. The, Tony did because he was like, "All right, so what's our next thing?" And I was like, "Our next thing." Uh, listen, man, I, I was a li- I was pessimistic at the time, which mm. is, if there's anything I can say that I want any of your viewers to take from this is, pessimism will get you nowhere. Mm. And I learned it firsthand in this moment where Tony's like, oh, what, what's our next thing? I go, hey, look, man. I don't know. I don't know, but I don't even know that I'm doing the next thing. He's like, wait, 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 hold on. Hold on. We, I, we just did the music video. It was a lot of fun. It was great. Let's keep going. We got to do another thing. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And, and he got me into that space to, to feel good enough to be like, all right, well, we'll do something. You know, he... he Tony's taught me so much about positivity and having your brain in the right place because it wasn't at the time. I was kind of a, like, not a hater, but like a very negative person. Like, so we agreed to make Vandal. That was our first thing that him and I said, okay, he liked it. He's like, graffiti's cool, okay. The world had changed. I was in a position to make a graffiti film. I wasn't 10 to 12 years before that. Winwood wasn't... Anything, it right? Exist when true. I thought of Vandal. Wow, and that brings it around full circle because the place that you would do graffiti before 
then becomes the backdrop. Becomes the epicenter of right. fucking of, art and graffiti. Yeah. Of, of, of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It does. That's that was wild. So wait a minute, but so did the deal with corporation the corporation happen? Not yet. Before That's still kind of simmering in the background. It's somewhere. simmering in the, in the background. background. Okay. Okay, to, to be specific for filmmakers that want to learn stuff, right? So in between that time where I was working at um the Olay. company at the, right. well the name of the company was Photon, which was backed by Olay. When I was working at Photon between then and the time that I, you know, leave Photon, I was just kind of floating around doing nothing, actually. And then I meet Tony and I shoot the music video. Well, you could say it was give or take about six to nine months. For those nine months, the rights to David Shanks' manuscript, which was the core of my IP and my whole play on the corporation, expires. Oh. The company dissolved. Oh. There were no more backers. I didn't have any money. Right. And all I had was was my integrity with David Shanks. And he was loyal. And he saw what I had done throughout the years. You know, we had diligently paid him on time always. He saw the, the moves I was making with Benicio. You know, that to him was big. Like, wow, you got to meet him with Benicio. And he's on board. Okay. Like, he, he had enough faith in what I had done when I had the resources that I told him, look, David... I don't have any money right now. I don't even have a company. I don't even know where I'm going in this business. All I ask is for you to give me a little bit of time to figure it out. I understand if you have to take this and do it with someone else, this is your life's work. So if you gotta go and set this up with someone else, I understand. All I can ask you is for a little bit of time. And he said, yes, I will give you a little bit of time. I trust in you, I believe in you. Those rights were available for like seven to eight months. That anybody could have come in and just snapped them. And it was David Shanks who stayed loyal to me. That's why it's it's so important to do well by people. Because there'll be a day where you're me and you don't have the company. You're not repped at WME. Everything failed. Everything just didn't work out. And you're going to have to ask someone to do you a favor. That Man, I'm feeling like a mobster kind of Scarface vibe, you know, permeating through this podcast. But, that but it's, loyalty. Yeah, man. Loyalty and doing right by people. I had done right by David Shanks. He did right by me. Mm-hmm. So me and Tony agree, okay, we're going to put Vandal into the into the system. Let's get this going. Let's start doing it. So we're already in development for a couple months, getting the script going and whatnot. David Shanks calls and says, hey, it's been, you know, about eight months. I think that's, I think I've done good by you. Like, it's time to, fi- like, the thing that you're going to figure it out, let's go. Right. I was like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so I, I go to Tony and I'm like, hey, man, I have this project that I've been percolating on for all these years. I got to tell you about it. So I tell him the whole story I told you, the whole journey. And I grab those thousand pages and I'm like, <laughs> And put it on his desk. Oh, oh, oh. Like, here it is. <laughs> we got to find somebody to turn these thousand pages into a 300-page book. And Tony was like, you know, Tony's new to the game. So he's like, look, at first, he's like, look, well, let's just focus on Vandal. Right. We'll get to this. I'm like, no, no, no. There is no getting to this. This has to happen now. You know, he David Shanks has been good to me. It's time to make a move. He slow danced on it for a couple weeks hey have you read it no 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 I'll read it no 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 I'll read it I could tell he was like well why, why, why isn't he into it I don't fuck why is this guy into it but to be frank I had gotten a lot of other Hollywood people I won't say their names I won't say the companies that I pitched this to before it was a book by TJ English and a, a couple times not laughed out of the room but more like man come on man like a lot of like let's just, nobody was interested people passed on this mm-hmm. people who would later bid and beg for it <laughs> passed on it when it was in its rawest form right so 
Tony has a chance encounter. And he's playing dominoes. Not chance encounter, but he's playing dominoes with his dad. He's like, wait, Jenny came to me with this project, a corporation about Jose Miguel Battle, the Bolita. Have you ever heard of it? His dad's eyes pop up. And he looks at him and goes, Batle? <laughs> Batle. The corporation. <laughs> what? He's like, Jose Miguel Battle is the baddest motherfucker. That's the head of the Cuban mafia. That's this, that. He knew everything. Because Tony's dad, just like that era, those people know. Right. And for years, I never had any luck infiltrating the Cuban exiles who worked for Battle, knew Battle, fought with him in the brigade. Tight lip, they wouldn't say a word. That's why David Chance was so important to me. I'm like, this is the only guy in the universe that's willing to put this on paper. No one else is. But his dad knew. Said, don't play around. Do that. That's good. That's wow. good. So Tony calls me. He's like, hey, this is what my dad said. I'm going to read it. Tony reads a thousand pages. He's like, this is good shit. All right. What's the deal? Let's go. I go to Tony's house with like five books to show him. Hey, look, these are like similar books. So we got to turn it into something like this. One of them was Havana Nocturne by T.J. English. This is one of my favorite books about the mafia in Cuba and Lucky Luciano, Sanzo Traficante. So I'm like, look, Tony, this is how it works. We got to take these thousand pages and, and approach a writer like this to turn it into a book. And he's like, okay. So he read, I think like, we, we narrowed it down to like three books. So he read all three books. And <laughs> this is the pessimist and the optimist conversation that has to happen. So Tony says, I like Havana Nocturne the best. That was the best one. These other ones are okay. Remember, it's non-fiction organized crime writing. There's a reason why T.J. English is the best in the genre, in my opinion, because it writes like a movie. It's right, right, It reads like a novel, even though it's true. It's, right. it's non-fiction. A lot of writers in this genre write police reports. Right. Not Which is what you had as your source material. Exactly. Right. So Tony's like, I like this Havana Nocturne. Let's get, let's go get TJ English. So I talked to my agent at the time about it. And he's like, look, TJ English is a very busy guy. He's probably like like got his next two books lined up. He's like, this this happens in the game where people are busy for years. Sure. Yeah. Trying to like school me. Look, he had a valid point. But he was like, so like, why don't we go with like one of the guys that are more attainable? Don't reach so high. Yeah, yeah. Like, right. like, let's go with that guy or that guy. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. I go back to Tony. I'm like, look, this is what he said. So let's go after this guy and this guy. And Tony's like, absolutely not. Wait, wait I'm... No, we're going to go for the best guy because what's the worst that can happen? He says no. Well, he could either love it and want to do it or say no. And then he says no and we keep on moving. Why wouldn't... I'm going to shoot for the stars and, you know, I'll land on the moon. Like, and he taught me about, like, I don't care what this agent says. Because I was like, but what do, you, what do you mean? He's an agent. He knows what he's talking about. Tony, like, he's an agent. And he's like, I, I don't care. I, I don't care what this agent says. Tell him to go talk to TJ English. And we're like... So I go back to him and I'm like, man, look, this is what Tony's saying. Look, I agree with you. Look, let, let's just, I, I need to humor him. Let's reach out to TJ's agent. He does. And he calls me. He's like, hey, they want to get on the phone. It's like, wow, really? <laughs> so he's like, yeah, they're interested. So I get on the phone with uh, TJ's agent and I didn't know TJ was going to be on the phone call. I thought it was just a pre-call with the, with TJ's book agent to talk about it. So I get on the phone, Nat Sobel, who's like a legend in the game, in the book uh, agent business. And, you know, Nat's like, hey, so, so what's up? Tell me about this. And before I can talk, I hear TJ's raspy voice. Hey, hey, this is TJ English. How you doing? Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, let's be specific. 
who, who do you have? What do you have? Wow. And I was like, whoa, I'm on the phone with TJ English. I, I was such a fan of the book, you know? Yeah. And he didn't want to bullshit either. No, like, no, 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 like, no. Yeah, he was <laughs> straight, straight what to it. What do you it. got? Who do you have? <laughs> Before he even anything. So I go and I just tell him the whole thing. The same thing I told you guys that I told Tony and the whole story. And he's like, wow, you have the story. You have it. You have Jack Bumminfield. You got David Chang. You really do have it. And I'm like, oh, well, how do you know these names? Like, I've been looking into this as a book for 10 years. I've known about the corporation forever. I've actually thought about writing a book on this several times and made light kind of poking around on sources, but I could never really... I I didn't feel confident about the sources. Clearly, you were out there in the background doing all this. It's like, you got it. He's like, I'm, I'm in. If this all checks out. It's like, I want to talk to this guy. I want to talk to that guy. I want to see what you have. If this all checks out, I'm in. Mm. I was like, whoa. So that right there, life changer. Sure. That's a life changer because, you know, I'll tell you the rest of the story and where it goes. But right there, it was like, and then, and then Tony looked at me. He's like, see, ah. I told you. Back in. That was a master class. And the first in a two-part series, so I there's know. a lot more to go. That was a great segue, the clean, you know, the cliffhanger. So you'll be able to continue the journey with, with JD next week. And that is for anyone, whether you're in the industry or not, for beginners, for intermediate, mm. for experts. Yeah. You know, that is a story for for everyone. And speaking of stories, we have our own segment, a very special segment. We have our intern here. Who's an up-and-comer. Yes. We're bringing him back for the second time. Second time. Wow. Because he put on the table a movie that is really generating a lot of buzz. Oscar buzz. Shia LaBeouf's comeback. Honey Boy. So, intern Andre, we want to get your take. Come on in here, intern. You've seen the movie, right? Yep. Let's do it. We got to know, because I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to watch it this weekend. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so Honey Boy was directed by Alma Harrell. It was her directorial debut. She usually did, like, um, documentaries and stuff like that. Um, And it was written by Shia LaBeouf himself. It was kind of a pseudo-biopic, kind of. Um, It was very emotional right off the bat. Um... From the start, you get a quick compilation of how Shia gets into, not Shia, his his character's name is Otis, but it's Shia's counterpart, how he gets into rehab. And then from there is where the story, it goes back and forth from him being in rehab and then his childhood and what put him in rehab. Um, it's a very symbolic movie, but it doesn't beat you across the head with all the symbolism. You know, it's very subtle. Um, and everything that, ha- it's not like trippy. Everything that happens is like, in a dream or something like that, you know? It's not like out of this world trip kind of movie. Um, Shia's performance was really, really cool. Uh, watching it, you're not like, oh, that's the kid from Transformers. He's older, he's more gritty, he plays uh, his his father's counterpart, which is a kind of washed up veteran. Um, the type that you know isn't fully racist, but makes some you know racist jokes and no, that doesn't it's doesn't hit with everyone. That type. Um, Lucas Hedges plays the older version of Otis, which is uh, Shia's 
counterpart. He's very good at it. He kind of even sounds like him sometimes, which is very hard to do. And the kid actor who plays um, the younger version of Otis, his name is Noah Jupe. He was great, and it's really hard to get good child actors. Everything, and he he had to do some like heavy stuff. It's very emotional, very dark sometimes. Um, they had him cursing, and they had him fighting with his father, Shia LaBeouf's character. Uh, it was really heavy. And then another thing about it, I grew up with Shia LaBeouf, technically. I was the perfect age for even Stevens, which is where he got his start. And then as I grew up, he did Transformers, which I was, again, the perfect age for that. So for me, someone that's been following him through his whole career, it was very interesting to see all this. So I personally give it an 8 out of 10. Is this his comeback film? I think so. He, he's he been doing a lot of press, press runs for this, and he's very calm, and he's very understanding, and he talks about um, how he got there, and he's not like crazy... Uh, no paper, bag on the head. Exactly. Paper bag. <laughs> I'm not famous anymore. Shia. He's very calm, cool, and collected. Shy Shia? Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, I just want to extrapolate another couple of nuggets. How old are you now? 100? I'm 22. 22. Yeah. I want to extrapolate another couple of nuggets. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought up something about the new Scooby-Doo. Yes. The Scooby-Doo reboot, kind of. Straight up just called Scoob. Um, oh, that's so hip. Yeah. <laughs> um, I found it very interesting because um, the designs were very nice and uh, all the fans were like, oh wow, this looks really good. Um, you know, instead of Fred wearing a polo and an ascot, he's wearing like a t-shirt and a jacket, but he still looks like Fred. Stuff like that. I thought it was very interesting. But what people are getting mad about is the casting choices for some of the characters. I personally think Will Forte can do Shaggy. He has that goofy kind of high-pitched Scoob kind of voice to him, so it's fine to me. A lot of people don't like um, Zach Efron as Fred because the voices are a little too different. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine. I like Zach Efron as a comedic actor, and this is supposed to be like a goofy animated movie, so I feel like it, it'll be okay. And Warner Brothers is behind it, and they did the Lego movies, which are pretty funny. Um, and they did the the Iron Giant way back when, so I have faith in it. I think it'll be okay. Okay. Wow. Hmm. That's another time. So we're going to have to have intern Andre come back on Scooby-Doo. How, how far off are we from Scooby-Doo? Scooby-Doo is a little bit off. Yeah, know, the like, trailer came out like a month ago. So Yeah, so it's probably dropping around February or yeah, so. Yeah, around right? there. Yeah. We'll have you back before then. Yeah, for sure. But thank you very much, intern Andre. No problem. Thank that was awesome. Thank you, Andre. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Well done, as well usual. Well done, sir. Two for two. Yes, yes, so, yes. Let's get into some young folks in Hollywood. What do you think? Yeah, hey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. There's some interesting controversy right now going on with the, uh, with the assistant world in Hollywood uh, that apparently... Um, they nearly half of assistants, uh, assistant level positions in Hollywood have to receive financial aid from their parents because they can't afford to live and work in Los Angeles. Yeah, we've spoken on this before, right? Well, we were we said we were going to speak. We on said it. we were going to speak on. But it. Right. yeah, there's a hashtag pay up Hollywood. Apparently. Oh, and it's being led actually from by some 
pretty powerful people, including the screenwriter John August, oh. who wrote Aladdin. Yeah. And he has a podcast called Script Notes in Los Angeles that first started to mention it. You know, he started to get some feedback from some young assistants. And, and yeah, saying that the vast majority, about 88%, are cost burdened living in Los Angeles and working there. And that nowadays, uh, assistants seem to be stuck in their positions for a lot longer. So, you know, there, there's this old adage in Hollywood that you have to pay your dues, right? Start off working for free, interning, you move up the ranks, but that that process should be quick enough that eventually you can catch up and be not only creatively satisfied, but financially stable. Yeah. And you know what? This is a cost of living issue as well, because the the old system, it wasn't as expensive to live in Los Angeles. Right. A report just came out that in order to have a regular living, Mm. 204 thousand dollars just for a regular lifestyle right so you can imagine you're stuck as an assistant (sighs) making fifty two thousand dollars at the top if if you're tier yeah at the top tier you know if you're assistant for like six years or something yeah so so yeah hollywood you know and we talk so much about the streaming wars and how much money is being spent on content and development uh but there seems like there are you know folks at the bottom level of the pit because hollywood is a pyramid you know yeah and the ones at the top they're very far and few whether you're acting or producing or an executive or an agent studio head but the bottom is very widespread but it's really the base of the whole system. It's yeah. the support of everything that happens at the higher levels. Yeah, you were there. I was there. I was I was part of that rung <laughs> towards yeah. towards the bottom and just kind of, you know, slowly started to Agent but, Agent's assistant. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So but it was, you know, again, it was great something that you can do in your 20s when you're out of college when you're just you know you want to learn the ropes um but in terms of having a career yeah unless you're able to find your niche and move up that ladder it it was a struggle you know it it wasn't easy to maintain even like i said a basic standard of living that's why you know so many assistants have to have uh roommates and they have to some of them still get help from their parents apparently a lot of them uh in order to just and but you know when you talk about inclusivity and diversity what does that tell you is that the ones that can afford to have that life yeah are from a certain social socioeconomic economic strata yeah. strata so what does that do for the young latino future executive or african american future right. executive that comes from lower income households that has the sort of the the creative knowledge of what it means to be from certain backgrounds and and have that power of inclusivity, but isn't even allowed to work their way up the ladder. And because yeah, enter into that pipeline because it is an ancestral business. Yeah, they can't afford and it. And so you know we, we talk about and you you know this, you know you start off as in, in the mailroom right. and then you work your way up to assistant of assistant and then mm-hmm. assistant and then you know this is just in the agency and then you're an agent, you know and then you still have to work hard even as an agent to move your way up sure and then maybe you know and it's the same way on every rung from PA you know moving up to you know producer or director or whatever right and you know the thought process is diversity oftentimes doesn't happen at the top per se although there is some things that are happening you know it's from the bottom up Hmm. And from the top down, you know, and if you're not filling those positions from the bottom up, then it becomes a little bit more challenging because you're only going from the, the top down. Right. Whereas, you know, you have from the bottom up moving and from the top down and people are hiring people that, you know, they've known for years and people work together with people that they've known for years. So you're, you know. 
talking to your buddy or so that, you know, you all both started out as in the mailroom. But now you've moved up and, you know, maybe one person is an agent and then another one's a producer and then you're moving up. If you're caught in that cycle and then that system, it doesn't engender a lot of opportunities for, you know, diversity. It's true. Yeah. And so, you know, they're trying to, you know, Hollywood seems very active, at least in the trades, about trying to, you know, fill those gaps and trying to be more open, more diverse, more inclusive. But until I think they start to fix some of these basic issues. Yeah. And yes, does it affect the company's bottom line? Of course it does. But it's you have to think about long term investment and where this industry is going, but how you need to sort of fix it at this basic fundamental level. And this is something I think that has not really been looked at. Mm-mm. And this is a conversation that's also going on in um, in D.C. because there is conversation about, you know, the interns in sure. D.C. Right. And, you know, those positions really you, you can't live on those salaries. Right. And so, you know, who can afford to actually be an intern over there? Right. And does that engender you know, diversity. So right. it's not just this industry, but these are the conversations that are happening happening right. now right. where it's become more substantive in terms of looking at really how this, you know, connection with creating a diverse workforce happens. Yeah. Yeah. It starts from the bottom up for sure. Guaranteed. That's always, always been. So yeah. Yeah, hopefully they'll get that figured out. But this is exciting. Sundance has had it's a record number of women producers, mm. um, diverse background, uh, producers, writers and directors. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that's that's a start. Yeah. It too. seems like the indie world is doing a much better job, uh, you know, at sort of uh, creating this movement, the film festivals, the indie filmmaking community. Uh, I mentioned Sundance, of course, because yeah. we talked about, you know, our, our, you know, people who have gone over there now. But yeah. It, 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 so, you know, there's other pockets. Right. But within, you know, this kind of greater industry segment. Right. And of course, hearing from someone who's actually worked within that environment, you know, yeah. it, I, I'm I'm happy that it's being looked at, and at, let's yeah. let's see what happens. Yeah, at least it, you know there's a spotlight on it now. You know, it, it was mentioned in the Hollywood Reporter and some of the other trades, so yeah. it's starting to to gain some momentum. And similarly, and related actually to John August, uh, there was a story recently. Uh, the star of Aladdin, who played the titular, so I say tit. Titular? T- titular character. <laughs> yeah, that was good. No, you, you said it right the first time. Uh, Menem Saud, uh, hopefully I'm saying that right, uh, has said recently that since the release of Aladdin and its $1 billion success, he hasn't had one audition. Oh, wow. That's, okay. yeah. that's, that's crazy. Yeah, born in Egypt, raised in Canada. Uh, and so, yeah... Uh, as as sort of a an Arab actor in the world of of Hollywood, he is finding it very difficult. Even after this breakthrough success, he was one of two thousand actors that auditioned for the part. And wow! Got it. Yeah, and you know, he said that the assumption from you know even his friends and family back home is that he's on easy street. Mm-hmm. You know, now that this movie made a billion dollars, he should be making millions. He should be getting auditions and gigs left and right. But uh, apparently, that hasn't been the case. Wow. That is something. But you know what? That reminds me of a young actor from a movie back in the day called Slumdog Millionaire, Mm. Dev Patel. Ah, yeah. So that movie was a tremendous hit globally. Yeah. But 
Dev Patel, who had another hit, you know, and he had his own, his own Oscar buzz, you know, a few years back for another film. He spoke about how difficult it was for him. He thought he was going to be on easy street after that movie and how difficult it was for him right. to stay even in the industry, you know, right. Indian actor. And so, you know, that does, you know, present the flip side of the coin in terms of, you know, some of the challenges in terms sure. of diversity. Now, so. now it, it makes sense. And, you know, but obviously th- there could be arguments either way. And I, I get it because I think that now when we see issues like that and they're brought to light, because, again, going back to the idea of more diversity, more inclusion in Hollywood, efforts have to be made to cast some of these characters and not just in certain specific roles designed for their culture and ethnicity, but, you know, to maybe give them more access to more general market or non-specific roles. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know? And that's the only way I think you're going to break through, because if not, he's waiting for the next Aladdin and, you know, to stereotype, it, you know, the next terrorist role or something that he has frowned upon. He doesn't want to be typecast. Yeah. But, you know, I can tell you something. This is on. And I, I just want to leave it with, with, with this. You know, this issue has to be looked at on so many different levels. Mm. And, you know, this is one layer, but there are so many layers because it's still the the scales still have not even come close to being balanced, you know. And so I'm happy that, you know, these different ways of looking at this issue yeah. have come out. But um, but look, I, g- granted, and we talked it so much with JD, uh, Hollywood is tough no matter who you are. Yeah. Or where you're from. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was an, uh, Christopher McQuarrie, I think, you know, the, who won the Academy Award. At great success. Started at Sundance with Brian Singer, won the Grand Jury Prize, a film that never got released. Uh, wrote Usual Suspects, mm-hmm. obviously, that Brian directed, won the Oscar, and said after that, it was like crickets. It was yeah. very hard for him to get a, yeah. another gig as a writer, even yeah. after winning the Oscar curse. It's considered, yeah, one of the greatest uh, scripts of all time. It's up there with Chinatown. They talk about Usual Suspects. Yeah, um, and and that it was a difficult journey for him. So he talks about the idea that you have to make your own luck. And he went on a yeah. Twitter rant recently. You know, now he's doing great. You know, he Top Gun. He's been working Mission Impossible. He's been doing great work at Paramount. You know, he found a collaboration with Tom Cruise, uh, and the last decade. Of his career has been very successful and lucrative but uh but yeah he struggled for many years and he just tells young people all the time like you need to make your own luck if you have the chance to make something make it yeah you know you can't just wait wait around can't just wait around can't just hope for that next opportunity jd talks about that too he does yeah but i did want to talk about one of my favorite actors of diversity rami malik ah rami malik i love him yes yeah because i just saw the teaser for the next James Bond film. Did you see it shaken or stirred? That teaser looked like it was both. It was <laughs> shaken, it was stirred, it was fried, dyed, and laid to the side. I mean, they threw everything in there. And it was exciting to see Rami in that yeah. teaser. Oh, diverse cast, you know, and now you have the, I guess, the first uh, female black 007. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. That's right. And well, not not a 007. I guess she has her own number. I don't I'm not really sure. No. So we don't know for sure because, you know, the script hasn't come out yet. Right. But I think the way the story goes is that 007 has retired and she's now moved up. Interesting. Into that place. And then he comes back. Wow. That's what I think, uh, you know, the, the plot twist is. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's great to see her in that role. But also, you know, just in general, that teaser is just like, 
amazing. Oh, yeah. Just amazing. It does keep that trend going mm. in terms of, you know, um, the helm. Yeah. yeah. You you wonder just how long Daniel Craig is going to be in that ship. Yeah. In, running the helm of that ship. But he looks great. Um, yeah. They- certainly, you know, he's front and center in terms of, you know, the physicality of it. Um, every bit of that, you know, I'm loving it. So I'm excited to see that movie. Yeah. And he's been a phenomenal bond. He's really helped that friend talk about IPs and franchises that have stood the test of time. 25 movies spanning how many decades now? Six decades. Yeah. 1960s. Dr. No, I think was the first one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And this is his fifth one. Yeah. This is his fifth. So he's, is that a record for bond? I think that's a record. Oh yeah. You have to look that up, but Hey, maybe he's going to go seven. Double oh seven. Lucky number double oh seven. Speaking of numbers, um, this is our 18th episode, so we're really happy about that. We're excited. Uh, Screen Heat Miami is rolling on. We have an exciting interview coming up for our next Screen Heat Miami. But this one, again, we're going to kind of, you know, keep it um, close to the hip. But for the very next one, we have the second part of J.D. Frexus? J.D. Frexus. Frexus. Yeah, we have the second half, which is as exciting as the James Bond teaser. Oh, yes. That's going to be definitely hot. It's full of twists and turns and just uh, an interesting, adventurous journey. So thank you all for listening. I'm J.L. Martinez. I'm Kevin Sharpley. And this is... Screen Heat Miami. Dale. Boom.